0: But today we are uh, in uh, Romans 16 still, we've kind of gotten a slow start in the chapter because we've taken quite a bit of time uh, first to talk about Phoebe uh, and in verses uh, in verse one and two and uh, and then about Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila in verse three, four in the first part of. 5 which is who we talked about last week and today I'd like to pick up with the end of verse 5 5b five and uh look actually at a number of people all the way down through verse 16 I don't know if we'll get all of them covered or not but that's the uh that's the plan okay So uh let's read uh Beginning in verse one, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Kincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, that you help her in whatever uh, she may have need of you. For she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greek Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet uh, Eponatus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles and who were, first, uh, who were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved, in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those who are of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Priscus, the beloved, who has Worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegron, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet uh, Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And I don't guarantee about fifty percent of those pronunciations. Okay, just you know, that's my best guess. All right, so. But at any rate, uh, so last week uh, we were looking at verses three through the first part of verse five, and uh, what do you remember we talked about? We're
1: talking about Christians, religious, and their history with Paul.
0: Okay. Okay. So they worked with Paul. Uh, what else do we know about him?
1: Well, in 5, we see that they had a church in their home. Okay? But, not unusual for a in, their home.
0: in fact, it was the norm because churches were uh were unable due to uh uh Due just to the society and the culture set, uh, they were unable to build churches like we do today. So virtually all churches for the first two or three hundred years of church history were house churches. OK, uh, which means by necessity, they tended to be smaller. We didn't didn't have churches of, you know, five hundred or a thousand people. You had smaller churches, uh, 40, 50, 60, 70 people, if you could if you could find a home that large. So. So and Priscilla and Aquila had a church in their home, have a church in their home here in Rome, as Paul's writing to them here. But we also learned that they had a church in their home uh, when they were uh, in Ephesus. Uh, and uh, how did they get to Ephesus? Why were they in Ephesus?
1: There was a persecution in Rome and they got sent out. OK. OK. Which we learned from Acts. We didn't talk about that last We talked about weeks ago. Uh yeah,
0: right. And uh, when they left Rome, where did they go?
1: Some other city. <laughs> <laughs> they went to Corinth. Corinth.
0: Okay, they went to Corinth, and Corinth is where they met Paul. Okay, so Paul meets them in Corinth. He actually lives in their home, and he and Aquila work together in the trade of tent making in Corinth. Okay. Uh, but when Paul, and remember, uh, Paul is in Corinth at the end of his sect towards the close of his second missionary journey. And when he's preparing to return to his home church in Antioch at the end of his second missionary journey, he leaves Corinth and he sails across the sea there, uh, stops briefly in Ephesus before he goes on, uh, home to Caesarea and to Antioch. And, uh, and when he sails from Corinth to Ephesus he takes Prisca and Aquila with him uh, to Ephesus and he leaves them in Ephesus what's what's going on there what's the significance of that I'm getting that blank stare again you know you can't beg off just because you weren't here last well, week <laughs> Okay, okay. Uh, they encounter a man by the name of Apollos. And we spent quite a bit of time last week talking about Apollos. Even though he's not in Romans 16, it was my opportunity to introduce us to Apollos. And so we talked quite a bit about this guy, Apollos. He was a Jew from the Egyptian city of Alexandria, which we know was this, uh, uh, has a very high concentration of, uh, of Jews and also was well-known for the level of scholarship, the libraries and that sort of thing, particularly Jewish scholarship that went on in the city of Alexandria. And it is a city in which the uh, Hebrew Bible was first translated into Greek, into what we call the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. And, uh, and so he's, uh, he's come from this highly uh, highly scholastic, intellectual Uh, Jewish community in Alexandria and when he comes to Ephesus we learn that this guy is very eloquent very well trained uh, very able to uh, to hold his own in debates and and uh, etc with with people but he doesn't understand all he doesn't know everything about Christ he's he's learned a little bit about Christ he knows about the baptism of John but that's about as far as he got And so Prisca and Aquila take Apollos under their arm, uh, under their wing, so to speak, and they uh, instruct him further, it says, or or more accurately in the way of the Lord. And so then this guy becomes this kind of really kind of super evangelist for the gospel. And he eventually then wants to go on to Corinth. And so the Christians in Ephesus uh, send a letter of commendation with him and he goes on to Corinth. And what happens when Apollos gets to Corinth? We're going to have to go back to that last lesson again. all over again. Here, I thought we were out of those verses. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Okay.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, Precisely. We know that Apollos was very effective in Corinth and he saw a number of people saved. And it's very clear that that's the case. He's very effective in refuting the Jews who are arguing uh, against uh, the gospel. And he sees a number of people saved. And so there they're develops within Corinth kind of different parties. And Apollos is not to blame for this. We see that pretty clearly. He's not to blame for it. But there are these people who say, well you know, Paul led me to Christ. And so I'm, of, you know, I'm of Paul. And other people were saying, well, uh, Apollos led me to Christ. And so uh, I'm of Apollos. And some other people were saying, well, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to be part of your parties. I'm of Christ. And uh, so there were these divisions that were occurring in Corinth. And uh, and how that relates to Apollos is it just demonstrates to us how effective this guy was. And his his effectiveness in sharing Christ and, and being influential there in the city of Corinth, that that effectiveness reflects back, of course, on Prisca and Aquila, who were the ones who took him aside and sat down with him and explained the way of God more accurately. And so that's how that whole story relates to Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, what else do we know about Priscilla and Aquila?
1: Somewhere they had... Uh... Risk
0: their lives for him, I don't know how yeah, out. yeah. we really don't know any of the details about it, which is kind of interesting. There's nothing said in Acts about how they risked their lives for Paul. Uh, but Paul says, I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> I'm sure he was. But he says, so are all the churches of the Gentiles, which means that whatever they had done was well known through all the Gentile churches. And so all the Gentile churches were indebted to Prisca and Aquila for their uh, uh, for their willingness to lay their own lives on the line, whatever that was, whether that was in the disturbance in the synagogue in Corinth, whether it was in, during the riot in Ephesus, uh, or when it was, we don't know. It could have been either one of those cases or another case we know nothing about. Okay, But they were left in Ephesus when Paul went back, uh, back home to Caesarea and Antioch at the end of the second missionary they were left there and so what we learn is that these people are uh, Paul entrusted them with this new plant okay? so Paul has uh, gone to Ephesus he's there for just apparently a few days uh, apparently sees some fruit as we'll see today and uh, but then he goes on and he leaves uh, uh, Prisca and Aquila there so in addition to risking their neck for the gospel in addition to having uh, churches in their home, both in Ephesus and in Rome, uh, in addition to working with Paul in Corinth, uh, we see that these are this is a couple that's kind of experienced in the whole idea of the ministry of planting churches okay and uh, so they play that role uh, in uh, uh, on Paul's behalf there in Ephesus then uh, on Paul's third missionary journey, as he begins his third missionary journey, he comes back across Asia Minor. And he comes to uh, he comes into Asia and he comes to Ephesus and he spends two years there and he has a two year uh, very successful ministry in Ephesus. Okay, well that's Prisca and Aquila and we talked a lot more about them, of course. Uh, but then in verse five, at the end of verse five, Paul goes on with his list. We've talked about this list. We've talked about why he mentions so many names, uh, why he knows so many people or knows of so many people. Uh, in a city that he's never visited in Rome uh but he lists this name I I I've told you several times that one of my methods of study as I prepare for uh I prepare for a lesson uh is I try to always make sure that I memorize the passage okay uh which uh I invariably do, unless the passage is just so long it's just prohibitive for me to get get it memorized in a few days. But I looked at I looked at Romans 16 this week, and I looked at this long list of unpronounceable names, and I said, I don't know if I can memorize this passage. Uh, but but yesterday I gave it a stab, and uh, and I and I actually got. At least I got the names down and I got the order of the names down. I don't know if I I don't know if I can recall every single uh, uh, word precisely because I usually like try to memorize the passages uh, word for word in the New American. Uh, But uh, uh, so at any rate, uh, and I was I was going to try and see if I could go through them for you here just off the top of my head. But I'm not going to do that because that'll take too much time. Uh, but I'm gonna let you guys test me and see if I actually know these names. but but I'll spare you and me both the agony of that, okay? Uh, but, so we have this list of names that we've already read through. and uh, and and as we say, Paul is greeting each one of these, sending greetings to each one of these individuals. We have actually twenty six individuals, twenty four of them are named by name. A couple of them are just referred to. OK. And then we have several groups of people that are referred to. Those who are the household of Aristobulus. And those who are the household of Narcissus and uh, the church that is in uh, Prisca and Aquila's home. Okay, So these are groups of people that Paul is greeting in addition to the 26 individuals uh, that are mentioned. Uh, and uh, so it's a, it's a substantial list. But what's. One of the things that's interesting to me about Paul as he names each one of these individuals and and kind of picture what's going on here. When we get later in chapter 16, we'll discover that this entire letter was dictated. He had a a secretary writing for him. So Paul is uh, there uh, in Corinth and he has somebody. So he's standing there walking. You know, if it were me, I'd be pacing the floor you know uh rattling off this letter as this guy's trying to keep up with me writing it down and I don't know if that's how Paul did it or not but but you can imagine as he gets to this point okay and he's thinking about the church in Rome he's you know you can imagine Paul's kind of walking the floor and there's a well, what's his name we'll get to him later uh and he's trying to write all these guys down okay and uh and Paul is is walking and he's going, well, let's see, there's so-and-so and then there's so-and-so. And, you know, and, this, and so he's thinking of all these names. But with every single name, you notice what he does? What does he do? With every single and he doesn't do this with the groups, but with every single individual, what does he do?
1: Greet
0: them. He greets them, yeah. He personalizes them, but he personalizes them in what way? What does he... He tells a little about them, but it's something... It's always something positive yeah yeah he's with every single one of them he's he's putting them in a positive context he's putting them in a positive light you know and uh, and and I don't know why he chooses the with some of them the particular uh, description that he chooses uh, you know for some he just simply says they're my kinsman and and we think well why didn't he say well that person was a hard worker or that person was chosen or well, you know why doesn't he say that why does he just say they're his kinsman well Paul that was important Paul that 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 mattered to him that somebody was his kinsman when Paul says they're my kinsman he means uh it's generally assumed that what he means by that is not that they were his cousin or his brother or or somebody like that but rather simply that they were Jews uh that, that the person is a Jew and so Uh, It is significant, I think, that Paul says of some of them. Simply, they are my kinsmen because it demonstrates that Paul, uh, uh, contrary to to what many people think, that Paul, even though himself a Jew, had become by this point anti-Jewish, he's not that way at all. He's very proud to be a Jew. He's glad to be a Jew. And he's glad to be associated with others who are Jews. And uh, so, uh, uh, so we don't know exactly why he singles out the particular things he does. But we'll talk more about that as we go. But uh, we've already read through the list of names. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through and I'd like to pick a few of them out and just talk about some that we that we can gather some more information about or that we might know a little bit more about and, and how that's relevant. And then I'd like to back up and i go through and kind of look at some of the different groups of people that he talks about. And so, I mean, there are certain people... That uh, several people he describes this way, and then several other people he describes this way, and then there's certain people that fit into the kind of this category. And I'd like to look at some of those groupings or categories and think about the significance of those. But but in verse five, after he's finished greeting Prisca and Aquila, and the church that is in their house, then his first person he mentions is a guy by the name of Epinatus, Okay, uh, and uh, what are the two things he tells us about Eponidas? Okay. He's, he's very dear to Paul. Okay. So he's beloved. Now, you know, if, if somebody, somebody sent me a greeting or whatever, and all they could say about me was that they loved me, that'd be pretty significant. Especially if it was the Apostle Paul. <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Just to know, just have somebody say, greet so-and-so. I love him. That'd just be a wonderful thing in itself, wouldn't it? Okay. But he doesn't stop there. There's something else about him. What is that? He's the first convert from Christ in Asia. Christ in Asia. Now, on Paul's second missionary journey, as, as I mentioned last week, when he when he was coming across Asia Minor, and he was headed towards, and he wanted to go to Asia. It says the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go into Asia. So we have Asia Minor is that whole land mass that we think of as Turkey today. Okay, so that's Asia Minor. Okay, but Asia is on the western end of that. And when we think of Asia in the New Testament era, we think of Ephesus and we think of the seven churches of Revelation. All the churches in Revelation, those seven churches that that letters are written to there in Revelation, the first three chapters of Revelation, all written to churches in Asia. So, Thyatira and and and, uh, uh, and Ephesus and uh, what are the others? Uh, Laodicea, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Okay. All those are Asian churches. So, they're over here on this western end of this landmass uh, that is Asia Minor. And the capital city is Ephesus. And Paul wanted to get into Asia. He's coming across Asia Minor. He wanted to get into Asia and the Holy Spirit said no. And the reason the Holy Spirit said no is because there was there were people up in Macedonia in Achaia, or, or excuse me, in Macedonia uh, in Philippi who were ready for the gospel, and Paul, the Holy Spirit wanted to get Paul up there, so instead of letting him go into Asia, he, he pushed him around until he finally ended up in. Uh, Macedonian and Philippi and began to see the tremendous things that happened then in Macedonia. And then he drops down into Achaia, which is the southern part of that Greek peninsula and uh, where Athens and Corinth and Cancria are, etc. And he spends uh, about 18 months there. Uh, okay, at the end of the segment, And then at the end of the second. Century, he does get a chance to go into Asia. As I said, he goes across. He stops in Ephesus briefly on his way back home. And it is apparently at that point that the church is established. In Ephesus. So Paul leaves from Corinth. He goes over to Ephesus. He spends a short time there in Ephesus. And it says about this guy, Eponidas, that he was the first convert to Christ from Asia. And so he's apparently the first guy that Paul encountered when he got into Ephesus, having left Corinth there at the end of his second missionary journey. He's apparently the, the first guy that Paul encountered that 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 actually turned to Christ, that was converted to Christ. Now, it's no wonder that Paul calls him beloved. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, if you've been in churches for much of your life, you've had the opportunity probably to listen to a lot of missionaries. And you have probably had the chance to look at a lot of missionary slides, right? Or missionary pictures. I certainly have. I've grown up in churches watching missionary slides of their ministry, okay? And one of the things that's interesting is, of course, they they always show slides of all kinds of people, right? They always have slides of this group of people and that group of people. And we watch them and, you know, we're kind of going, "Mm -hmm." but those people are important to those missionaries. Every one of those groups of people, every one of those faces is important to those missionaries. That's why they take pictures of them and bring them home and show them to us. So they can show us what Christ is doing where they live, but one thing that's interesting to me is how oftentimes i've heard a missionary say, "This was the first one who received Christ. This was the first convert. this was my first one in this area maybe it was a maybe it was a village, maybe it was a region, uh maybe a very difficult area where Christ had never been named before, and they had gone in maybe in new guinea or or uh, Africa or someplace in uh, in the Middle East or whatever, and they'll point to this person and they'll say, "Now this person, this is the first one." Well, Epinatus is the first one from Asia, and so Paul has this very special affection for him. You know, it's kind of like your firstborn child. There's just a connection there, right? And uh, and so this is this is Eponatus and. Uh, and then he greets Mary, uh, says simply about Mary that she is uh, a hard worker uh, for them, that is, for the Romans. So she is, of course, uh, because she's being greeted in Rome, she is in Rome and has a reputation for how hard she works for the church. And what she does, we don't know. He doesn't specify. Much, yeah. Much, there's, there's so on train, she
1: for yeah. For the. And she. I think that, that she made them work.
0: Uh, no, she worked for them on their behalf. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who has worked hard for you? How, how does your translation
1: read?
0: Oh, okay. Uh, is that the King James? Yeah, uh, the King James version. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a little clearer in the in the more in the newer translations that she worked hard on behalf of the Romans. Okay. You like that idea of making people work hard, didn't you? <laughs> well, maybe that's a good point. Uh, that's, that's pretty. <laughs> there you go. And then he mentioned uh, these two people, Andronicus and Junius. OK, now we know Andronicus is a, a masculine name, but there's quite a bit of dispute or, or uh, at least debate, I should say, about this individual Junius. Is this a man or a woman? And what's interesting is for the first 13 centuries or so, up until about the 13th century of church history, uh, it was virtually unanimously held by all the scholars and commentators, etc. that this was a woman. Uh, And then beginning in about the 13th century, up until the 20th century, uh opinion began to shift and it became very common to view this individual as a man, that this was a masculine name. Okay? And then uh more recently, since the twentieth century, later part of the twentieth century and into the twenty-first century, uh, opinionists began to shift kind of back to the uh, to the thought that this is a woman. Now the confusion lies uh, in, in the fact that it's not really clear in the Greek, okay so uh, as I understand it, I don't know Greek well enough to know the difference here. But as I understand it, it all hinges really on the placement of the accent on the word. OK, and so it's possible that uh, as it's translated here uh, in uh, in the New American, where it's translated Junius, that that's actually a contraction or an abbreviation uh of a name uh, uh, Junianus okay which is a masculine name okay so the thought is it could be a contraction of Junianus uh, and and Paul has simply contracted it here to Junius uh, which he does in other places even in this chapter so this is not unheard of for Paul to do uh, so if it is in fact a contraction of the name Junianus then this would be a, a, a masculine name uh, but It could also just simply be the name Junia, uh, Junia, J-U-N-I-A, okay, and uh, and uh, just because of the way Greek is Greek works, okay, it would look the same as the contraction of Junianus, okay, so that they, they look the same, and the only difference would be where the accent is placed, and the problem with the accents is we don't. Have the accents in many of the old manuscripts in the, in the ancient manuscripts? We don't know where the accents lie. Okay, you know of course that the old the old manuscripts were written without any punctuation at all. They were written without divisions. They, they needed to save parchment space, so they didn't divide between the words. There are no paragraph divisions. There are no word divisions. There's no punctuation. Uh, there's no capitalization. There's nothing. Okay, so you can imagine how difficult that is to read. Okay, so it takes a lot of work. Uh, and, but uh, some of the ancient manuscripts did have uh, accent marks and some of them didn't. And so the question is, where do those accent marks come from and are they reliable? So, so we really don't know for sure okay, whether this is a masculine or a feminine name. Uh, uh, but as I said, for the first 13 centuries, it was pretty generally that this was a woman. Uh, I'll mention why this is all significant in a minute. Uh, and then, and then, beginning uh, like we say in about the 13th century, and for this next seven centuries, it was uh, it, opinion tended to shift towards it being masculine, and now it's tended to shift back. Now, the problem with uh, the one problem with it kind of shifting back is it seems like there's a little bit of an agenda there, because it also mentions that these two people are outstanding among the apostles. Okay, and so depending on how you understand what Paul means by apostles here if Paul by apostleship here is referring to the twelve, is referring to uh, those who are in authority over the universal church, and this is a woman, then this gives us some credence to establish that in the New Testament church there were women in high positions of authority in the church. Okay, So, I think some of the attitude that's shifting us back towards being a Uh, the idea that it's a female, I think some of that is driven a little bit by that agenda. They want it to be a woman so they can then argue uh, that uh, women had high positions of authority. There's a couple problems with that. One is the problem with the name itself. The other problem was how Paul is using the word apostle there and whether or not that's how he means it. So there are two problems with that and be pretty weak basis by which to argue that women should have positions of high authority in the church. Okay, so... Uh, but even in spite of the fact that I think that that's some of the some of the uh, motive behind the shift in the last 50 years or so I tend to think it's a woman it looks to me like it's a woman okay she's coupled or this individual is coupled with somebody who is a man in a very similar way that Aquila and Priscilla are coupled together earlier in the passage and then another couple uh, Philologus and uh, uh, Julia are in verse 15, coupled together. They are quite apparently a married couple, and so it just it, it looks the same to me, and uh, and so uh, it it just makes sense to me the way just from the context that Paul here is speaking of a married couple. Uh, it just seems kind of unusual to have two people who would be that closely connected together. For that long of a period of time. These are people who he says came to Christ before he did. They are outstanding among the apostles. Uh, and, uh, uh, and they're his fellow kinsmen. Uh, some commentators suggest these, these two people were converted at Pentecost. Because they obviously are long-standing uh, uh, people of reputation. Uh, it would be pretty unusual to have two guys closely associated together like that. Uh, for that period of time. So, it just seems to me that it's a woman. It's a couple that's talking about. Andronicus and Junia or Junius or Junian. Okay. Well, that thought entered my mind. The fact that they're fellow prisoners. You don't often see women being in prison. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but there was persecution of women as well as men. Uh, even back in the early early church, even when Paul was persecuting, he was persecuting both women and men. So uh, but that is a thought that crossed my mind, made me wonder, you know, how oftentimes are women imprisoned okay. Uh, but yes.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think just I didn't even look at that in my are the apostles that they could just be well
0: known by the apostles. Well that's yeah, we haven't gotten to that point. We're getting there, yes. Good point. Uh So anyway, I just operate on the assumption and I couldn't be dogmatic about this. I'd be foolish to be dogmatic. But I operate on the assumption that they're a couple. okay, a married couple. Uh, Man and woman married couple. (laughs) Excuse me, I had to throw that in, didn't I? Okay, Uh, so they are a couple. uh, And uh, and he says they are his kinsmen. So they are Jews. Okay, so even though Andronicus is a Gentile name, these are Jews, which implies that Andronicus is a Hellenistic Jew. Okay, so he's probably not from Palestine originally. Could have originally been from Rome and been among those who it says in Acts 2 had traveled from Rome to, uh, uh, to Jerusalem for Pentecost and uh, may have been converted to Pentecost. We don't know. But then it does mention that they were his fellow prisoners. Now, that could mean a couple of different things. It could mean that they were at some time imprisoned with Paul. Now, we do read about some of Paul's imprisonments, but there are obviously many other times when Paul was in prison that are not listed for us in the book of Acts that we don't know about. Uh, so uh, so we have a number, a number of several imprisonments and they could have been imprisoned with him. And so he particularly feels akin with kinship with them because they have been in prison together, or he could simply mean that we have shared the same experience of being in prison for the gospel. They are my fellow prisoners. Okay, so it could be that they've been imprisoned at some other time in some other place, not when Paul was imprisoned, but but still they have this camaraderie. It's just like we have today. If somebody has gone through some if you've gone through some particularly difficult circumstance, or difficult situation and somebody else has gone through a similar situation to yours, you you connect, don't you? There's kind of a, there's an empathy that you share together with one another. You didn't go through it together. You didn't go through it at the same time. But there's a connection there. I can identify with that. Okay. And um, so, uh, so that may be how Paul means it. We don't. No, but what is is important is not whether or not they were imprisoned with Paul or another time, but what's important is that this couple has been imprisoned for the gospel. This people, these people have suffered for Christ. And they spent time in prison. How long, under what circumstances, we don't know. Okay. Um, and then he says uh, uh, Let me get things straight here. They're fellow prisoners. Oh, and then he says they're outstanding among the the apostles. And as the question's been raised already, the question is, does that mean that they are among the apostles and stand out among the apostles? Or does it mean that those who are apostles, to those who are apostles, these people stand out? Okay. The apostles look at these people as outstanding people. Okay. Now, we don't really know for sure. Commentators tend to lean to the view that they are outstanding among the apostles, meaning they are classified with the apostles and they are outstanding with them. Okay, uh, They stand out. Well, I think it's pretty clear Paul is not using the word apostleship here in reference to the twelve and himself and James. Okay, that, those are those apostles uh, uh, are usually when Paul refers to them, he refers to them uh, in, in a special way in which he acknowledges from where they get their authority. Okay, that they are apostles of Christ. But the word apostle, the great word from which we translate the word and get the word apostle, uh, is uh, is a word that simply means one who is sent. Or a messenger. Okay, so when we read it, we oftentimes, and it's when we read the word apostle in the New Testament, we oftentimes, and rightly so, think of the twelve. Okay, or we think of the twelve with Paul and James. Okay. So we, we think of that special group who had authority over all the churches. Okay. They're the ones who got to decide this is what the doctrine of the church is. This is what we believe. This is what we practice. Okay. They were the ultimate authority after Christ's ascension. Okay. But the word is also used on a few occasions in the New Testament simply to refer to somebody who is sent or it's used in the sense of the idea of a traveling missionary. Okay? And it appears that that's how the word is being used here. Uh, when he says that they are outstanding among the apostles, I think it'd be pretty clear that he couldn't be using the word apostles in the sense of, uh, of the, uh, the authoritative apostles, because this is the only time we hear of them. How could we say they were outstanding among the apostles? The outstanding apostles are Peter and James, and John and Paul, those are the outstanding apostles. Uh, And Paul refers to those who are like the chief or the head apostles. And those are the outstanding apostles. And they are clearly recognized in the New Testament as such. So this couple who only get mentioned in passing at the end of Romans clearly are not outstanding among that group. So the idea probably that Paul is trying to convey here is that among those who are traveling and ministering the gospel, this couple stands out. They stand out in part because they have been imprisoned for the gospel. Uh, and, they, uh, and they stand out, he says, uh, because they were in Christ before me. In other words, they have a long track record. <laughs> They've been Christians for a long time. They've been Christians longer than Paul has been a Christian. And Paul recognizes that and gives them respect because they have been Christians for so long. So, so at any rate, there's this couple. But it's but but they're obviously an outstanding couple, aren't they? They're a remarkable couple because they are Jewish believers who have been in Christ for a long time and they are still faithful to Him and they're still working for Him in the city of Rome now. And uh, And they have suffered. They have put their... Uh, next on the line like Prisca and Aquila they put themselves on the line for the gospel so a couple certainly to be commended and whether it's two men or a man and a woman it's still uh, that's still the case well then he then he lists uh four people together kind of together he mentions andronicus and uh or excuse me and and urbanus and uh Stakees and Apelles, four different people that he mentions in sequence there. Andronicus, or excuse me, and Simply, he says, is my beloved in the Lord. He identifies Urbanus as one of his fellow workers. The only time I think we hear of him. Uh, then he mentions uh, a guy by the name of Stiches, uh who he also class calls his beloved. And then he mentions this guy, Apelles. And Apelles he says is the approved in Christ now that's kind of an interesting way to identify the guy because I'd think, okay, all these guys I would think would be approved, okay uh, I think Christ would approve all these people we've read about so far, right so what does he mean why does he what is he what is he singling out about a palace? Well, that idea of approved means to be tested you know we we talk about being tested our, our faith being tested by fire it 's that word it's that idea of, of going through the fire and coming out being demonstrated to be the real thing. what he's saying here is a palace is the real thing, and he's demonstrated that and we don't know how I don 't know how he maybe maybe he's just demonstrated it because he's been around a long time and he's just been faithful over the long haul. You know, I know of Christians who, you know, they've not done anything that we would necessarily think of as really big, you know. They're not the kind of things you'd write home about necessarily. But they've just come to Christ, plugged into the body of Christ, and just been faithful where God has put them over the long haul. And that oftentimes is more difficult than doing the big things. Just being faithful with the little things. Day after day, week after week, month after month, just doing the, the mundane tasks that need done in the body of Christ. And when somebody has done that for a long time, they've proven they're the real thing.
1: You know, Rick, is it? Mm-hmm thinking about that in the last few days that there's probably where most of us are yeah absolutely 90%. yeah 90% of us yeah but very few of us are in position like Ryan, for example in the yeah in church or, yeah or maybe in a in Sunday school class like you are that we have the daily life that sometimes gets really uh, difficult yeah I um, or I think of the words of Jesus in this world we'll have tribulation. But he has been yeah. true from the world. say, we've got this tribulation, whatever it is. Yeah. And we, for whatever reason, God hasn't put us in a position to really be out on the platform on the world stage, where we just have the regular, everyday things yeah. to deal with and maintain faith. And yeah. That's
0: your are describing. Yeah. It, yeah. Describing our yeah. Right and so that could be very well why Apollo sticks out. Or it could be that Apollos has gone through some great crisis. He's gone through some great test of his faith. Yeah. And some of us have had that. Probably all of us have had that to some degree. But, but, but some people just go through things. We, of course, we can't help but think of, of uh, Chris Kennedy this morning and what he's going through right now. This terrible crisis of faith that thankfully I've never had to face and uh and and uh, of course he's he obviously you know he's he's a guy who's approved because he's he's been tested by this and you read what he wrote in the last couple of days what he wrote just before his wife passed away on his blog or what he wrote yesterday after she died and you see the strength of his faith and the strength of his trust in Christ he's a man who is Approve. Some of us go through great crises in life, and maybe a is some guy who has faced some horrendous difficulty or trial, but he has just been faithful, like Job was faithful. He's just been faithful, and so Paul could say of him, could say of this guy, this guy's been tested, and he's the real thing. So there's a palace, uh and uh, and then, then he mentions uh, uh, three names come to uh, come up next. He mentions uh, those who are of Aristobulus, and then he mentions a man by the name Herodian, and then he mentions those who are, are of uh, a man by the name of Narcissus. Okay, and these actually get all classified together. Probably, as I said, Paul's walking around and he's thinking, and he thinks of the the household of or those who are of Aristobulus and then that makes him think about Herodian because there's a connection there and then he thinks about uh, and then he thinks because uh, of that he thinks about this uh, this guy Narcissus and those who are associated uh, with his household okay now you'll notice that he doesn't greet Aristobulus Uh, there's a couple reasons he's not a believer and he's dead okay so we don't he doesn't he doesn't, uh, he doesn't greet Aristobulus. The same is true of Narcissus. He doesn't greet Narcissus. And the same things are true about Narcissus. He's clearly not a believer and he's dead. You say, How do we know these guys aren't believers? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. Uh, Herodian, on the other hand, is a kinsman and apparently a believer. Okay, But the reason they all fit together is because they're all associated with the emperor's household. Okay. Uh, the evidence, uh, uh, and again, we, we have to hold some of this uh, a little bit uh, loosely, but the evidence is strongly suggests that Aristob- this particular Aristobulus is Aristobulus who associated very closely as a friend of the Emperor Claudius. Okay, uh, but but what is particularly stands out is he is the grandson of Herod the Great. Okay, now who was Herod the Great? Yeah, the guy who tried to kill Jesus, the guy who did the slaughter of the innocents, okay? Real nice fellow, right? Well, his whole family was like that. His sons were like that, okay? And uh, one of his sons was a guy by the name of Herod Agrippa, and his son... Was Aristobulus now? Herod Agrippa became a king, but Aristobulus never did. He he uh, he remained a civilian uh, his whole life. But he was very closely associated with Caesar's household. He was a friend of Claudius, uh, uh, the Emperor Claudius. Okay, and uh, but we know that he died in about forty eight or forty nine. Okay, but what would happen? If uh, if you had a house and you had a household and the household would include not only your children, but your servants and your slaves and that sort of thing. And if you were a very close friend of Caesar, and there's a number of examples of this from ancient history. If you were a very close friend of Caesar and you died, your household would get attached to Caesar's household. Okay. So remember, I think it's in Philippians where Paul sends greetings and so sends greetings to those of Caesar's household. Okay. So, so your your slaves and your servants, et etc, would all get attached to the emperors to Caesars, but you would retain your identity okay so you'd still be known as the household of so and so okay, but you are now associated with or affiliated with the imperial household okay so this group of people this these people who are of Aristobulus, or of his household, as our translations put it, who are of his household, are apparently believers who are now in Caesar's household, but they are identified with this guy who is the grandson of Herod the Great. Now that's pretty cool when you think about it. Because these Herods, they didn't like Jesus. And they didn't like the disciples. We run into Herod again. uh, The second Herod, we run into him at the crucifixion of Christ, right? So we, we keep running into these guys. They're bad guys. They're nasty guys. But the gospel is penetrating their homes. The gospel is penetrating their household. And people in their households are getting saved. And then Aristobulus dies and those people in Aristobulus' household who have come to Christ are now transferred over into the household of the emperor. It's pretty cool, isn't it? To see how the gospel penetrates all levels of society. Well, while we're thinking about Aristobulus, this descendant of Herod, Paul then remembers Herodian. Okay? And he has the name Herodian. He is apparently what we call a slave or a freedman. Okay, A slave is a slave. A freedman is somebody who has been a slave and has been given their freedom. Now, oftentimes a freedman was... Uh, you know, after they're freed from slavery, uh, they're still pretty poor. They're in the lower class of society, etc., etc. But sometimes they actually were elevated to very high positions. Okay. And this appears to be the case with Herodian. Uh, we don't know much about him, but but his name implies that he is a one who has been a slave, now probably a freeman, who was associated with the household of Herod and thus given the name Herodian to identifying with Herod's household. So here we have another person who's very highly connected within the political uh, realm in Rome and is a kinsman, a Jew, and apparently a believer because he's associated with the church in Rome. Since Paul would write a greeting to the church in Rome and Herodian would be in it. And then we come to this guy Narcissus. And again, it's like with Aristobulus, It's just his household. He's not greeting Narcissus. And Narcissus was kind of like Aristobulus. He was a very close uh, associate of Claudius, but much more so than Aristobulus was. He was really kind of uh, one of Claudius' right-hand men. Now, if you know anything about Claudius, the emperor Claudius, he wasn't a nice guy either, okay? And there are a lot of shenanigans that went on in his rule. And Narcissus would have been Right in on all that. He was his advisor. He was very close in. So much so that when Claudius died and Nero came to power, Nero's mother, Agrippina, saw to it that he died. Now, some say Agrippina killed him. Some say he committed suicide. But it's pretty clear that he was disposed of (laughs) because he was associated with Claudius and now Nero has come to power. Okay, so this guy was also a freedman. Okay, but he's one of those who had been elevated to a very high level, and was extremely wealthy. He was known for how wealthy he was, tremendously influential, closely associated with Claudius, and uh, and he has this household. And again, when he dies, now his household gets associated or uh, or melded into the household of Nero. But in that household, again, as with Aristobulus, in that household are men and women who have trusted Christ. Men and women who are taking a stand for Christ and who are not ashamed to go out and meet with the church and be identified with the church of Jesus Christ. So, uh, just some tremendous uh, tremendous people here that we're reading about. Well, then after that, he mentions uh, three, uh, a couple uh, women who are... Uh, uh, let me get down there, verse 12. Who are apparently sisters? Uh, we don't know for sure, but they appear to be sisters, Tryphena and Tryphosa. And he simply identifies them as those who work are workers in the Lord. And then he mentions another woman, Persis, who he refers to again as beloved. And about her, that she has worked hard in the Lord. So three women they together. And then he mentions in verse 13 a guy by the name of Rufus. And of Rufus it says he is a choice man or a chosen man or elect man in the Lord. And also his mother and mine. And uh, what's interesting about Rufus is he says he's a choice man. And the question is, well, how does Paul mean that? Yeah. Or he's an elect man in the Lord. and uh, And it would seem strange for Paul to single him out and say... He's elect in the sense that we normally think of the elect, because they're all elect, right? <laughs> all the church, all these people he's listing are all among the elect. So why would he single Rufus out as the elect or the chosen? Well, he apparently is not using the word in the sense of the elect of God. Okay, uh, and, and it's interesting that that uh, at no other place uh, is the word election used in reference to a specific individual. It doesn't ever say so and so is elect. OK, it's always a reference to a group of people. You are the elect in Christ, etc etc et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's never used in specific reference to an individual. So be highly unusual if it was done so here. Uh, and, and, and like I say, it seemed it would seem awkward for him to do that in the context here where where they're all obviously the elect. Uh, so how does he mean it? Well, he probably means there's something special about him—special, something unusual about him. He has, he has a privileged position. What would that be?
1: A little scribble here that reminds me that he is the son of Simon the Cyrenian. Precisely. So he was present for the crucifixion of Well, he couldn't. At least with mm-hmm. the cross being Was his father was?
0: Yeah, and he may have been. Yeah. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, written by Mark, uh, most scholars believe that Mark is writing on behalf of Peter. so in in other words, Mark is kind of peter's Gospel, okay? so he's he's uh, relaying what Peter has told him, and is believed it is written from Rome. and and mark, in mark fifteen verse twenty one, in talking about Simon Cyrene, the man who carried Jesus' cross. Remember, when Jesus collapsed, couldn't bear his cross anymore. Simon the Cyrene is pressed into service. He comes and he picks up the cross and he carries it on to Golgotha. Okay. And we often think about him. Well, Mark mentions in Mark 15, 21 that Simon Cyrene had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And he's writing from Rome. And he just mentions that. He just, In fact, let me read it to you so you get the gist of it. Uh, Mark 15, 21. They pressed into service a passerby, coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, parentheses, of course, in the English Bible, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. So in other words, as Mark is writing this, he's saying he pressed into service Simon of Cyrene. And then he wants to clarify who this guy is. So to the people he's writing his gospel, he says, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And he's writing from Rome. So in other words, obviously the people who the first readers of this gospel, they know who Alexander and Rufus are. And they're in Rome. OK. And so so it's generally believed and agreed that this guy Rufus in Romans chapter 16 is the son Of Simon and Cyrene. Now that is an honorable position to hold. To be the son of the guy who carried the Lord's cross. Can you imagine the stories he heard? Milford pointed out he could very possibly have even been there with his father. (laughs) Uh, You know, that's a possibility. But whether he was or not, he certainly heard the stories about the crucifixion of Christ. What a tremendous privilege to have a guy like that in your church, right? Who can give you virtual eyewitness testimony about what went on at the cross and on the Via Dolorosa. So, at any rate, very special guy. And he says, and then Paul greets his mother, he says, and my mother also. Uh, Probably uh, all the commentators seem to be in agreement that what he means by this simply is that Rufus' mother, which would be the wife of Simon of Cyrene, had mothered Paul in some way. In some way, she had taken Paul under her wings, had cared for her, cared for him, nurtured him in some way. We don't know any of the details, but he obviously feels a very close affection for this woman who is the wife of Simon of Cyrene. Uh, and then uh, he says, greet uh, Assycretus, Phlegron, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. These are just mostly these are slave names or names of freedmen. Uh, You notice it's not who meets in the house of here. So apparently they have no patron. They have nobody who said, okay, you know, I have a big house and I'm rich. You can come meet my house. So commentators tend to think that this group here and the subsequent group in verse 15 are both groups that meet in the tenements of Rome. Okay, Rome was primarily populated, of course, by poor people, uh, lower class people. Uh, the richer people had their villas and their nice homes, and et cetera, et cetera. But the vast, vast majority of the population of Rome lived in what we would think of today as as apartment buildings. Okay, they are they were tenements. They were literally multi-story buildings with with living num, numerous living units in them. They're called tenements. And uh, and it appears that these two groups, the second group in verse 15, Fulgus Julia, who are probably a married couple. Nereus, uh, who may be their son and his sister and uh, Olympus who is also associated with the group probably also a tenement church okay? and all the saints who says who are with them so there are more who meet with them okay? <clears throat> and so what we have in this list of names is we have people who are very high up in society highly connected clear up to the imperial household and then we have groups of people who are just ordinary people out there in the tenements. And they're all grouped together here in this greeting in chapter 16. You have, out of the 26 names that are named, you have no, or 26 people who are identified, 24 named, you have nine women. So a third of the people who are mentioned are women. Four of them, it says, simply they're hard workers. One of them, Priscilla, is somebody who's risked their, not their life for Paul uh another one is a woman who has who has uh mothered and nurtured paul uh, uh, i'm i'm missing one too there another one that's particularly outstanding um uh, uh and, and one of them is outstanding among the apostles if we classify uh as Junian as, as a, a woman. So you have one who's rest her neck. You have four that work hard uh, for the church or for Paul. You have one who's mothered Paul. You have another who's outstanding among the apostles. You have two who are simply mentioned in association with, uh, with, with men, either with their uh, brother or their husband or whatever. So, so one of the things we see here, again, is what we've seen before, is this high regard that Paul has for women in the church. This elevated position of women in the church, uh, that is absolutely countercultural in the day in which he lives. Uh, and then he, uh, uh, so we have uh, we have women, we have the men, uh, uh, or we have the higher class, we have the lower class, we have those who Paul mentions uh, so a number. He mentions are his beloved. Some of them he just simply says they are his kinsmen, uh, whatever. And then he gives his final greeting. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. This actually became part of the, uh, uh, part of the uh, uh, liturgy or part of the practice of the church in the early church. This greeting, we still do it today. We don't kiss each other, do we? But we shake one another's hands. We greet one another in the course of our worship service. That's an ancient tradition. Goes all the way back to the very first century of greeting one another in the church. Okay. And uh, and then he says, all of the churches greet you. Paul is apparently speaking. Uh, He he has taken his own initiative and is just speaking on behalf of all the churches that he represents. Or the possibility is that as Paul has been traveling, he's been mentioning to all these churches. I'm going to Rome and I'm going to write a letter to Rome. And it's very possible that all these churches will when you go to Rome or if you write Rome, tell them hi for us. There's this great affinity between the churches, uh, between one another. Uh, in in this vast world that was even uh, a much bigger world than the world we live in today in many respects. Uh, Or the other possibility, the reason he knows he can give a greeting from all the churches, is by this time, Paul has already assembled a team of men representative of all these various regions who are contributing to the offering in Judea. And they are already assembled with him in Corinth and they're getting ready now to travel back uh, at the end of his... uh, Third missionary journey traveled back to Judea, and they all have assembled together. We read about this in the Book of Acts. So uh, it's possible that that all these various men who are now assembled together with him as representatives of this region, to, of these various regions, to bring the offering back to Judea, that they're all saying, "Well, on, on behalf of our churches, you greet the church in Rome." Whatever the case is, these greetings are given. Well, I just want to point out something to you here. Paul has made a point with every single one of these people to stop and say something positive about it. He's thought about it and he's thought, now what's what's one positive thing that stands out about that person? And I wonder if that's our habit. Is it our habit when we think of people to stop and think, what word or what phrase could I use that is a positive thought that characterizes this person? So oftentimes when we talk about other people, we always want to kind of throw in that little kind of, you know, well, you know, yeah, they're a Christian, but, you know, they different doctrine or they, you know, yeah that's kind of hot headed or he's, you know, well, this guy, you know, he's, a little too zealous for me, or you know, or or uh, you know this or that, or you know they kind of dress funny when they come to church, you know. Or we, somehow we get we get some kind of perverted satisfaction out of throwing people in a negative light. But Paul here names 26 people. And he can think of something positive to say about each one What if that were my habit? But not only is he doing it, but he's sending greetings to them. So, when the greeting comes, the greeting comes like this. Oh, Paul wants me to greet you. He says he loves you. Oh, Paul wants me to greet you. He says you are chosen of the Lord. Oh, Paul wants me to greet you. He says, you are tested and you're the real thing. You see how it encouraged people? If word got back to them what we were saying about them. And the flip side of that is one of the commentators brought this up and I thought it was a great point. If you had to think of a word or a phrase, just one, to characterize me, what would I want that to be? What is the the one word or one little brief phrase that you would want to characterize you? If somebody thought of you, you'd want them to think of that. It's kind of like asking, what do you want written on your gravestone, right? What What is it you want people to say about you when you're not around? I want to be the kind of person that people don't have to think for 30 minutes before they go. You remember, Rick? He's such and such.
1: Just is the way the pastor doesn't have to lie
0: at your There you go. There you go. Yeah. So anyway, those are the thoughts We're way over time. Thank you for your patience. Next week we'll go on.